Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And I'm Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And today we're doing something a bit different. In the midst of the post-Easter malaise, something strange happened. The internet, critics, and viewers alike began showering praise and adulation on, of all things, one of those live TV musicals. And a little bit of stunt programming, NBC aired a live showing of Jesus Christ Superstar on Easter Sunday. And lo and behold, the world loved it. This performance is getting rave reviews. The New York Times called it genuinely thrilling. Moreover, the show had some real stars in important roles. John Legend played the part of Jesus and Sarah Bareilles as Mary Magdalene. Previous live TV musicals have likewise had star power, and they mostly fell flat. But something was different here. So Matt called me and put out the bat signal and proposed that we talk about this performance, this musical, and this genre of the live TV musical. And in a piece of kismet, friend of the show, Tim Hughes, pastor of Light Street Church in Baltimore, also texted me about the show, and it seemed predetermined that he would join the conversation. So here we are. Tim, thanks for coming back to the show. My pleasure. All right, y'all, what happened here? We have a 70s rock opera written by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber that has had a fairly long history of controversy. And while it has inspired devotion in some, it certainly hasn't ever been considered to be musical theater royalty. The show is largely told from the perspective of Judas and follows Christ through the Passion Week. And while I want to get to some of the theological themes of the show eventually, I want to ask up front, did this show resonate with you? I mean, Tim, specifically, did it work for you like it worked for others and work in the way that it uh, it seemed to inspire people? Uh, I totally loved watching the show, and I can't... Uh, I can't claim to be a huge fan of musical theater, but I do have a long-standing relationship with Jesus Christ Superstar. So I was really curious to uh, to see what was going to happen, and uh, I have to say that I was totally into it. And uh, more as like a spectator in the first half, and then I found myself like surprisingly emotionally involved by the end of it. So, what were your expectations going in? I think honestly, I was just most curious to see John Legend inhabit the Jesus role kind of as John Legend's voice and also as a uh, black Jesus. Um, I was just really curious to see how all that was going to come together. And so when it, when it did come together, it was, it was moving and, and interesting. Um, but have you watched any of the other live TV musicals? Uh, what sets this apart from those? Well, uh, I, I watched them all, <laughs> and uh, I, this is the only one to my memory that had a live audience included. They kind of did that with Hairspray, um, but they, at some point they changed the name of this show 
um, and added the words a live concert or something like that at the end of it to sort of um, telegraph that they were doing that. And uh, and I'm not sure why it made such a big difference, but it uh, I think it changed the way the actors performed. I think they were playing to the live audience instead of the television cameras, and that uh, made a difference in how the whole thing felt. It made a huge difference. I mean, that felt like such a such a major seismic shift in the show compared to the ones I've seen before, and I haven't seen all of them. I thought Grease was fairly successful, but the other ones I'd seen, the Peter Pan and Sound of Music, were a little flat, even with even with some fairly well-talented folks in some of those roles. But there's something about the the pretense of putting on a show that is that kind of making it into fit into the box of television and dealing with the sets and the the confines of of doing television work that something about stripping that away and letting it be on stage and having the audience there and having the musicians right there and letting letting stage performers do stage work and then running cameras around them uh felt so much more uh, authentic and kind of alive to me than any of the stuff I'd seen before and Tim, as you watched it, uh, who stood out to you as a performer? Is, uh, and, you know, the show is, is such an interesting one, considering that really the main character of the show is Judas. And Judas is the only real stage actor lead that they, um, that they cast. Um, if, the, if this show has three main leads, Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and Judas, this story is, is told from Judas's perspective and there are three main leads in this, uh, and they found uh, Brandon Victor Dixon to to be the the part with the most meat, the part with the most interesting things to do, the part that requires perhaps the the most sophisticated acting. Um, as you were watching it, um, I think people were showing up for John Legend, but did you stay for John Legend? No, no, hands down, Judas. That part. I mean, if you're familiar with the show, that's the that's the role anyway. And I think uh, the, the Jesus character is supposed to be a little bit of a cipher. You know, a lot of the time on stage, everybody's just kind of like wondering what Jesus is doing. So maybe John Legend and his relatively limited ability to act was able to do that. <laughs> um, but Judas was, uh, you know, just incredible. And I have to say that, like, beyond Judas, maybe outside of the the, uh, the lead roles, there were a lot of stage actors um, right. in the production. And I think that's another difference between this show and uh, and some of the other ones. Yeah. So, Tim, earlier you said that you had uh, experience with this show. All right. So I want to hear your 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 prior experience of of hanging out with Jesus Christ Superstar prior to this uh, to this showing. And Matt, that I want to hear from you, like what was your prior experience with this show prior to seeing John Legend and Sarah Bareilles? And uh, well, I I have been in four productions of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> All right. Uh, For someone who doesn't love musical theater. <laughs> It happened to, to me by accident. I was a member of a church that did a sort of reduce, like a, a shortened version of Jesus Christ Superstar every Palm Sunday, um, but with full on a full on production with a live band and a choreographer. Uh, and so for four years in a row, I played the part of disciple number three, one of a member of the ensemble. Um, so I went through a whole, a whole love hate love process with jesus christ superstar where i was interested enough to get involved and then i was like really embarrassed to participate in it because i just wasn't ready for the singing and the dancing 
and then I uh, I came to love it. So why what did you love about it? Uh, I guess maybe there's some really significant theological questions being asked by the show, and uh, some of it is explicit in the words, but some of it is just in the choices that are made. The choice to sort of center and humanize Judas raises really interesting questions. The role of the chorus, you know, singing good old Ju- Judas in the background, um, and, and clearly sort of siding with him, just sort of as a piece of art, it's really interesting. As a theological conversation piece, it's really interesting. And how did it work liturgically? Well, part of the reason why it always happened on Palm Sunday is because the resurrection is so downplayed in, uh, in the performance the the way in which it was interpreted for worship um, was sort of with the liturgical dance at the very end um, that sort of implied resurrection. It was a great place to stop, you know, as you enter enter Holy Week. That's really interesting. So, um, so I, I found the 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 good old Judas parts of of this show uh, perhaps the most moving part. Um, because I, it's hard to figure out what you do with that part. When, when Judas decides to betray Jesus, you get the chorus that sings for him. And then when Judas hangs himself, you get the chorus that sings for him. And I've seen, I mean, my own personal history is I've seen Jesus Christ Superstar stage probably six times um, live. Um, I sort of had a minor obsession with this show when I was in eighth grade. And, uh, and, and saw it and has taken and taken the opportunity to see it in a number of different times. And that particular portion of the show where Judas is affirmed in his decision-making is, uh, is, does require some directorial deafness. And when in this show on uh, last Sunday on Easter Sunday, they made it sound as if it were a choir of angels Right, like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the the lighting cue is that there's a light that opens from heaven, um, and suddenly all of the the chorus is off stage singing this, and I, I thought that that was quite moving and um, and provocative in its own way. But Matt, as you were watching it, uh, what was your history with uh, with Jesus Christ Superstar, and what about this particular performance stood out to you? Well, amazingly, I have never seen a live production of Jesus Christ Superstar, so I feel like I am the outsider in the room now. Um, so my experience <laughs> with it is entirely um, as as kind of the original concert album, um, and 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 I have seen the '73 film, though it has been too long back for me to have any reference for it now. Um, in some ways, I I feel like I mean this was written as a kind of concept piece, right? It wasn't written as a full musical. It doesn't have a, a, a full libretto. It's hard to pull this off as, uh, as a show that feels like it has the heft to equal kind of your normal quote-unquote Broadway experience. But in some ways, I felt like that gave it some flexibility for this performance that was, really, that was very much to its credit. Uh, it allows the show to work in some some ambiguous ways um, and, and some kind of non-narrative ways. It, the, the story happens through music and through symbolism and through staging uh, and, and without, you know, having long bits of dialogue or anything of the sort, which I think plays to the advantage of 
the the staging that they chose and, and kind of helped me uh, feel like I was engaging with something really artistic and not just kind of a, a by the numbers piece. I think that's one of the one of the nice things about the show is that it lends itself to that flexible creativity. Yeah, the lack of like the movement out of singing into talking, which I feel like in in the previous television events always feels a little jarring just because the medium is is now getting twisted in a way that that defies our expectations in a way that doesn't feel comfortable but the fact that the music almost never stops in this in this show almost propels it forward and and to your experience earlier tim like that's part of the reason why i think it might work as a liturgical piece is because it it has movement there isn't you don't people have to act they have to sing but they don't have to do the exposition if that makes sense yeah 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 you know as disciple number three you need to you need to hit your your cues and and say what's the buzz tell me what's happening but um but you don't um you don't have to fully embody a character and and that sort of impressionism, I think, actually works really well in this environment. And why it's why something like The Sound of Music doesn't really work well, because it felt, as I think you used the word earlier, Matt, it felt flat. Like the, the sets feel flat. The, the acting feels flat, um, in part because the medium itself is really flat. It's a, it's a two-dimensional picture that we're looking at. But in this particular performance, like, I thought that they moved the camera really well. I don't know if, if you were noticing, like yeah. they were able to do things um, with camera angles that I thought were really fresh and interesting. When um, when Jesus is uh, when the lepers are asking for Jesus's help and they sort of surround him, and the and the camera takes a, a like a direct center mass uh, angle from above, and you see uh, everyone sort of formed in this tableau from directly above almost like a god's eye view um it it was really interesting i've never seen that before you know because as someone who sat in an audience to watch this you never get that perspective yeah and I, and, I, and I think i think having the audience there and pitching it as concert makes is what enables that difference because i'm so aware that i am watching someone i'm watching people perform for other people and then I am the third party to that interaction. Uh, and so I, it allows the camera to move in ways that it wouldn't be allowed to move. Uh, it would look very odd if you were watching a bunch of dancers from the side perform to an empty house. But the fact that they're performing to an audience, which is cheering along and singing along like a rock audience, changes, for me, the emotional experience of seeing that. And so I think it, it is permission giving for them to do all kinds of interesting things. I will say I watched this with my husband who had never seen the show before, and he was to totally confused for the first like 20 minutes <laughs> because it was the camera work was so crazy and the audience was so loud that it was difficult to understand what was going on. Uh, hmm. You know, I think yeah. if you're very familiar with the show, you know what you're getting into. But there was really no way to know that they were in Jerusalem. There was no way to know, like, who was who. Um, so it took a little while to figure out what was going on. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it, it's done in media res, right? Like, everything is already in progress at this moment. And it feels like you're sort of jumping in. And this is 
part of it's um it's not a traditional broadway show like matt said it has it's sort of it just sort of jumps into scenes as if they're already in progress and um and that allows you to get in and out of these scenes pretty quickly um but at the end of the day i think for a newcomer who's just seeing the show for the first time it's got to be a little bit difficult i i i found the fact that like the mix would get wonky because people were screaming and there and there's some poor sound technician trying to like make sure that the audience can hear and that the monitors are right in in the uh, the performance ears and then that like it's coming into a soundboard and going out to all of these homes and they can hear it and that's just got to be a nightmare job but i i i i thought it like it was one of those minor glitches that reminded me that this was a live show yeah too yeah. Right. And that, that was charming to me at the end of the day. Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, great. Like, yeah, this isn't perfect. Um, the, the pilot at the end of the, of, um, the interrogation scene, like his, you know, his, his voice is just shot at that point and he's trying to hit notes and he can't really hit them. And there's a part of me, if I were on Broadway and I had spent, I don't know, more than a hundred dollars for a ticket, I'd be a little annoyed. I'd be like, come on. Can we get anything better than this? Right. But in this particular moment, I found it um, really effective. I, found yeah. I, I thought that there was a ton of pathos in it. And, and that, was, that was unexpected for me as I was watching it. There's someone made an analogy to me a few years ago about, uh, about uh, being a fan of Saturday Night Live. It's, like being a, it's almost like being a sports fan in a way. Like you just want them to play well. And that rooting for SNL, the rooting for the SNL cast is like rooting for a sports team. And I found that a little bit here where like, I just really wanted them to do a good job. And when it, when something clunked or when the camera whipped, when it wasn't supposed to, or whatever that was, like, it just reminded me that we were all kind of, we were all part of the show together and we were trying to all pull it off. Um, but there was something very charming about that. I think, yeah. And additionally, I, I also like these performers. You know, like I have I have fond feelings for Sarah Bareilles and John Legend. I like their music. I listen to it, um, which is different than some of the other uh, live TV musicals that have been that have been shown. I have I've tuned in and there have been moments where I, I enjoyed it. And there are there are certain performances within these live TV musicals that I've enjoyed. I think Audra McDonald singing Climb Every Mountain is genius and beautiful. Right. Um, and and yet throughout the whole show, I was just so yeah, like you, I was so proud of everybody. <laughs> I yeah. thought they were just doing an awesome job. I thought I was I thought that this was a little bit of a risk. Like here's here are two pop stars who certainly can sing, but this is a piece of music that you know taxes even some of the most like technically savvy singers uh, in the world, and so. To see them like just put their own stamp on it and to do an amazing job, like I think John Legend, yeah, his acting is a little wooden, but his uh, his performance in Gethsemane was was incredible. It was really really good. And I think uh, I I I somehow underestimated the impact of just representation. Yeah. You know, um, watching um, a black man play Jesus was uh, sort of a low impact at the first on the first half of the show. But then once it got to the arrest, um, they made the decision to have someone in the sort of group of people around him filming it on the cell phone. Did you guys see that? Yeah. 
Um, and it just was a, instantly another layer of, of meaning. Um, and in addition to that, the history, the history of this play is, is troubling in a lot of ways. And not just because of its theological themes, but for its casting themes. Of the six times that I've seen it, um, four of them have had a black Judas and a white Jesus. Wow. Um, and that was the original casting decision of the cast album. It was also the casting decision of the movie. Um, and, um, and whether that was an intentional decision or not, to see two black faces in these primary lead roles did something different. I have never seen, I'd never seen the show with two black male leads like that. And it, I, I think like you, Tim, to have that representation uh, a major part of the decision-making of the direction of the show just was compelling. It was, it was quite powerful. And it was a phenomenally diverse cast, even beyond those leads as well, which was, which was wonderful to see. Right. There, the New York Times did a really interesting little interview with, uh, with John Legend, with yeah, with all of the the important leads and Alice Cooper, and asked them about like, um, like what what do you think about the show? What do you think about spirituality or religion? And and of of between Judas, Jesus, and and Mary, they all had some religion in their background, but were sort of spiritual folk. And then Alice Cooper was a born again Christian, which is another interesting part of this right, <laughs> right. this equation. Um, and but but each of them found like deep meaning in this story as they were a part of it, um, which I found really, really interesting. There is a there's a quite fascinating uh, YouTube video of John Legend during his last tour for his last album where he shows up at a Philadelphia church, like a Philadelphia Baptist church and just sort of unannounced. The minister knows that he's coming, but the congregation doesn't. Um, and he leads them in some singing. And he talks about his own history about, you know, leading choirs and, and Black Baptist churches when he was like 15 and 16 years old. And that's really where he found his start and has since sort of trotted his own spiritual journey through the world. Um, but it was it was interesting to have watched that within the last week or so and then seen him in this and see um, something that had some real depth and maybe a little bit of um, maturity that I didn't know was, uh, was, was there. Which leads me to a, a question that I want, I want to ask you all is, like, what was compelling to you about this picture of Jesus as, as told in, in this particular performance, or Judas, or others? Um, and also, was there anything that was sort of troubling to you about this vision? The moment where Judas sings, I don't know how to love him, is so awesome. <laughs> Uh, you know, because it's presented as a sort of the romantic story between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, which is in and of itself controversial, but then is taken and in, in sort of appropriated theologically when, when Judas does it. And I, I love that moment, and I love what they're doing there. I love the fact that there is a little bit of homoerotic subtext to that whole relationship. Um, but also, there's that sort of uh, decision that they made to have Jesus turn around and hug Judas yeah. after the betrayal, um, which I took to mean sort of a sort of uh, an ultimate redemption, 
of his person, which, you know, <laughs> again, take it or leave it. Like as a theological idea, it's very interesting and provocative to raise in, in a piece of art, especially in such a, uh, a relatively subtle way. The, the point in the show, and you all have seen the stagings of this, so I'll, I'll bend on your, I'll lean on your uh, expertise. But the Judas's last number, superstar, uh, that he's singing as Jesus is being taken away and put on the cross. Uh, I'm curious about the history of the staging of that because it felt so. It felt to me like Jesus was so conspicuously absent during that scene, uh, which is in some ways it's Judas's. It's Judas's monologue at him. It's Judas's accusation of him, uh, and the the crowd's kind of ironic accusation of him. In some ways, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's kind of question of him, uh, and and yet Jesus is not there, as one receiving those questions, and that that felt really off to me. Uh, I, I wanted them to be. I wanted Jesus to be the the silent dialogue partner instead of just being rushed off stage and maybe he needed to go and get equipped so that they could do all the technical work around having him on the cross that they're about to go and do maybe there are practical reasons for it but i'm curious to you all as folks who have seen this staging is that typical yeah so it is and i think you've touched on one part of this that in every every performance that i've seen um the cross is raised up right like so it's flown and Jesus has to go um, get equipped, like harnessed up, basically. Right, right. And so there's a moment where you need some sort of musical interlude. Um, but what's interesting to me about that particular song is that Judas always makes a costume change as well. And so that Judas is typically costumed in darker colors, Jesus in lighter colors. But by the end of the show, he all Judas almost always comes out in like a white robe or in this particular instance, like a sparkly bodysuit. Um, <laughs> and um, and I and I've always taken it to mean that there is this is the redemptive moment for Judas. Judas has questions, but questions um, about Jesus uh aren't things that keep you out of heaven, for instance. They aren't, they aren't going to get in the way of this sacrificial love, even Judas, right? And that's why the foreshadowing of the, of the chorus that sings good old Judas, Judas is part of this plan. And, and Judas seems to know it at the end, right? Like he gets in, in the scene where he hangs himself, where he gets, he gets angry at God, sad that this was the plan all along. And, that he had to be the one to sacrifice, to be sacrificed in the midst of this. But this show, like Tim said, has this moment of empathy where Judas gets another song, you know? And that was, uh, I think, in interesting and, and, and powerful. It's, I mean, it's a theological point that originally when I was in eighth grade, I remember talking to someone and they said, their mom wouldn't let them be in the play because they, because their parents objected to the fact that Judas gets to go to heaven. And it was the first time that I realized like that this show was actually trying to do something a little bit more powerful with, um, or a little bit different with its narrative than what I was used to or what the culture around me was used to. Additionally, 
I don't know what to do with Jesus in this show. I, I, I end the show always like more in love with Judas and more empathetic towards G- Judas. But I don't know. The crucifixion and the the interrogation don't don't feel as powerful to me as an arc than the Judas arc. So do you like Jesus in this movie or in this show? Or let me put it a different way. Do you want to follow Jesus in this show? Well, when we when we actually performed it in church, we actually didn't perform Superstar. That was a, a conscious decision. Mm. So it goes straight from the crucifixion event to the uh, to that instrumental piece at the end, right? Um, and I think that was helpful for the purposes of what we were doing with it in worship. But uh, to also in the staging of the show that we did, and I think it's also true in what they did in the uh, live musical, the disciples essentially become a part of sort of the crucifixion machine. Right. Um, and uh, we had choreographed dance moves that were very much like a machine and were in rhythm with that bass line, that bam, 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 bam. Um, and it was always very upsetting to be a part of that sequence. And I also, you know, to perform the Herod piece, the Alice Cooper song in, in the sanctuary during worship um, was also very upsetting. Huh. And I think that that was that's very effective as you are a if you are a person who is in worship, sort of considering the role you might play in the betrayal of Jesus, the the, the provocations of the musical to perform them is or even to participate in a worship experience in which they are being performed in the worship space was very impactful. So I in think when w- when Judas doesn't come back, in other words. I the, Jesus is the focal point at the end, right? But that's not how the musical's written. Yeah, and so so watching it this time and seeing that interlude uh, between the interrogation and the resurrection with what is perhaps the most upbeat song. I mean, it's this it's the showstopper. It's supposed to be the finale, and yet it isn't. It isn't the climax. It doesn't end the show, right? The show ends with this crucifixion, which is a very strange way to end it, right? I want to talk a little bit about the, the that final shot and what happens in in the uh, the live TV musical performance of this show, which is most of the time the cross goes up with Jesus on it. Um, but here they did something a little bit different, where the the cross goes up. The, the whole set moves, and then it's Jesus retreats into the fog, into like a bright light, and the set itself frames the cross with another cross. It was it was really remarkable. It was inc- like a really poignant and powerful last image. How did it affect you all? I was just wondering about the lighting that made that work. I mean, it was a really remarkable piece of technical achievement to pull that off, not not just in a theatrical space, but then to have it translate on television. It's like, that's a that's pretty well done. Um, I was watching on, I was watching this all on Hulu. I wasn't watching it live on Sunday. Uh, and for whatever reason, though, I normally see ads during the Hulu content uh, that on Monday I was not seeing ads. 
I don't know whether someone had bought up those ad slots or not, because as of today, I was when I went back to relook at it, there were definitely ads back. But it did have this strange effect for me, because one of the things that happens, of course, with a live musical is that you have with a te- television musical is you have commercial breaks that change the pacing of the show. And one of the the key, the most important one, arguably, is right there is that Jesus fades into the light and then we cut to like a Hardy's ad or something. <laughs> Um, which, which, which feels odd, but is also like, it is the break in the story. It is the important break in the story. Um, whether or not you're going to run out with whether, whether or not there's a, a resurrection appearance, which, which there is not in this libretto or however you're telling that Holy Week story, that's the, we need a moment. Um, but when I watched it, there was no moment. So Jesus kind of goes up into the light. We hold for a second. Uh, it flashes to black and comes back and immediately the entire cast is out in the middle of the stage taking their curtain calls. Uh, and th- that was very jarring to me. I had this, like, I had just run over Holy Weekend a little bit without having a chance to process what had just happened. And then even to have John Legend run back on and obviously he's just John Legend and he's taking a bow and it's not the resurrected Jesus and I get that, but it felt... It felt like that that beat was really strange to me, uh, and I'm not sure what I was looking for, except maybe I just needed to go have some some ads put in my face for a minute, to, just to have a, a a moment of breast. Yeah, what would have happened if if Superstar is done after that? If Superstar is the final song, well, I think that the part of the whole idea of Jesus Christ Superstar is the is the celebrity personality of Jesus and sort of the adoring crowd that follow him around and the pressure being put on him to perform a role. Uh, And so I think the idea of being a superstar is uh, an ambivalent, you know, it's presented as an ambivalent idea. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, that ambivalence that to me goes all the way to the end of the show. Because, because the sort of this triumphant music is happening literally as the cross is being lifted up. Yeah. And uh, that, to me, is the sort of dissonance that, that is really interesting. And I don't know exactly. <laughs> to be honest with you, I don't, know, I don't know what it means. Yeah, and I think that's, what, that's where this show probably succeeds, where others have failed, which is it, it had a little bit more ambiguity in it. And I think that that's part of the show itself but i the the particular casting choices the particular staging choices the particular um just the putting the audience there all of that created uh an, an event right and i think when we talk about like worship for instance recently what theologians will talk about it in terms of an event an encounter um <clears throat> You can't fully curate this. You can't be totally in control of what's going to happen. What you can do is create an encounter. And in it, each person gets to decide for themselves how that encounter is um, is moving them, what it's saying to them. Or, or you make room for God to act in any way that God chooses without having to have um, final and total control over the particular worship encounter. And to the extent that this is this is worship or akin to worship or as it was in, uh, in a, the church that you were at, Tim, that um, it, it does create an encounter where you don't have all of the answers at the end. 
you have some pretty powerful experiences, I think, but also some real questions. I think by the end of the, of the musical, I was, um, I was trying to see if this was a Jesus that I recognized. Yeah, it all these stories were familiar to me, but is this how I envisioned Jesus? So I was talking to my wife, and she was like, you know, I'm going to go to bed. And I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying this. You don't want to say that? But she's like, you know what? I don't recognize this Jesus. And then, and I thought that that was honest and, and appropriate. Um, and I had to question myself, like, okay, do I recognize this Jesus? Is this someone for whom ostensibly I, I think I have some measure of relationship with? Uh, and should I be mad that this doesn't reflect the person who I claim to know? Or should this challenge my own preconceived notions about who Jesus is? And I'm still wrestling through those questions. I don't have answers to them. I was going to say that the part that was is troubling for me is just sort of the conflation of the death and the resurrection and the ascension. You know, there's no risen bodily Jesus. There's only this sort of mystery floating away Jesus, which I think of more as the ascension experience of Jesus. Um, so it's just not, sure. like, yeah, it's not theologically what I think that moment is about. Yeah. So, but does it challenge any of your ideas about what that moment is about? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it, as a meditation on, on Jesus as a revolutionary figure and as a sort of celebrity figure, it's, it's a, it's a great way to like sort of think about the tensions of that, that Jesus was really, I think really dealing with throughout his whole ministry. Uh, and I don't really interpret the final events of the play in a literal way. So uh, I wouldn't say that it challenges me to think differently, but it's a great exploration um, of, of the themes. So finally, as we sort of near the end of this conversation, what, what's going to be the effect of this? Is there, is there, I mean, I think that this is going to get some like cultural traction. I think it might... Um, it might sponsor some people who are interested in Jesus Christ Superstar a little bit more. Um, it's going to change live musicals. What 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 changes do you think are going to happen because of this? I think the change. I I would expect the changes more on the realm of kind of what the live TV musical looks like. I think they've opened the door to reconsidering staging in a bunch of ways, and I I, I am hopeful for what that will mean. Uh, just in terms of just as a fan of these kind of events when they're done right. I think this this shows a, an example of how to do it right. I think it's worth noting that like the appreciation for this production in the church seems to have split pretty neatly along conservative progressive lines. You know, the conservative church was not delighted with this production of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> well, but they've not been delighted with any production of Jesus Christ Superstar, right? For sure. And so I don't I don't know if that's a function of this particular production or just the the subject as as a whole. But I, I think it's yeah I think it you're right that it's worth recognizing that this is not universally beloved. <laughs> so now's the time in our show where we do our postludes. Uh, this is just another little preacher thought about something else we're reading or watching. Um, Tim, you want to stick around and do one with us? Yeah, sure. Uh, all right, Matt, what's your postlude? Uh, I saw Ready Player One on the day after Easter. 
uh, in my uh, Easter comatose state. Uh, I, I have y'all read that book? Have you read it? Either of you? No. I read it. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I did. I like the book okay, but it's like the obsessive kind of the obsessive geek culture callback stuff was frustrating as a reader. Uh, and even though I know it's part of the world of the book, but just the language of reading that, I found a little a, a little too cute for its own good. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. There's something about having that visually that worked a lot better where I could let the I, I could it got out of the way of the story a little bit that in ways that I found helpful. So this is one of those places where I actually thought the movie was was quite a bit more successful than the book was. It's really interesting watching a very um, kind of old school movie about very contemporary ideas of fan culture. I mean, this is this is Spielberg kind of this is old school Spielberg making like a like an 80s family action adventure movie. I think at its heart, it reminded me of Goonies more than anything else Uh, that it's kind of got this very light touch that I think is much harder to pull off under the surface than it seems. Um, And it's not quite as interested in, you know, the big questions about. Uh, justice and equality that are kind of under the surface of the book and kind of under the surface of the movie, but the movie is also just content to be about kids who are trying to beat the bad guys. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. I'm not sure that I have a major theological takeaway, but if you are looking for a kind of pleasantly diverting way of um, building up some post-Easter reserves back into your body, this, there there are worse things you could do than to go hang out at ready player one for a while what about you tim uh well tonight is the third episode of the 10th season of rupaul's drag race and um 10 seasons 10 seasons 10 seasons a decade of rupaul's drag race (laughs) uh and uh you know what i love so much about drag and the show is that it's really an art form and the show takes it seriously but it's also very campy and it's always sort of a send-up um so you know i think uh the the unexperienced viewer might think they were making fun of sort of the tropes of of being a woman but it's actually sort of a celebration of it um in a way that's always lighthearted. and uh and i uh i actually preached a sermon <laughs> for palm sunday uh about the triumphant entry, trying to make sense of Jesus's sort of adopting all of the tropes of an emperor coming into town or the next king. Um, and it occurred to me that Jesus might be doing empire drag, you know, sort of dressing up as it, as a way of calling attention to both the good and the bad of the thing he is sort of um, embodying. So uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, it's a lot of fun to watch. It comes on tonight. All right. So uh, my postlude is I've been, I've been steadily watching David Chang's Ugly Delicious, which is uh, a new food show on Netflix. It is intentionally trying to avoid the type of glossy food porn that is so prevalent. And I think at the heart of his thesis about this particular show is that um, is food doesn't need to be beautiful in order to taste good and that we should begin to... Um, uh, rethink how food operates in the world. And mostly he's, he's, he's very concerned with how 
where food comes from and where particular dishes come from. And so each episode usually takes place in three or four different locales, all worrying about something, a, a, a preparation or an animal in a slightly different way. So for instance, there's a, uh, uh, an episode about barbecue. And of course he talks about Southern barbecue, but he also goes to Asia and, and sees how Asian barbecue is, um, uh, works and how Peking duck is basically the same prep as, um, as you would find in low country barbecue somewhere else. Um, just slightly different ingredients being used, but the techniques are the same. Um, one episode in particular I found really compelling, and this is what I think is making this show stand out as far as food shows are concerned, is where um, is the show on fried chicken. And he makes a point to go to all of these different um, indigenous types of cuisine, and they have all figured out that taking a bird breading it and throwing it in hot oil makes something utterly delicious. And so he spends time with an Indian chef who's done that and a, um, a Japanese chef who's done that. And of course, Southern chefs who have done that. Um, and that would have been a really cool show. Uh, but then he takes it in a different direction by the end of the show. And he has, I think one of the better discussions about race and food and culture, um, especially with the ways in which the the stereotype of fried chicken and the African-American experience in this country have coincided and how fried chicken has become code for um, for uh, racist tropes in um, as far back as the um, the beginning of this country. And he asks really honest questions and has really frank conversations with people. Um, he has conversations about in Nashville about the appropriation of hot chicken by new white chefs um, and has those conversations with white chefs, even as he has those conversations with the people who the um, the black chefs who are the ones who originated the dish. And at the end of the episode, I just was really impressed by the willingness to have such frank conversations about something as important to culture as food. And so if you want to check out something interesting, check out Ugly Delicious. I think it's really good. So that about wraps it up for today. We want to thank everyone who's tuning in. If you like the show, go onto iTunes and leave a rating. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Uh, they're hosting us and doing such great promotion of the show. And we really appreciate that. We also want to thank Garrett Moskowski and all of our friends who are willing to come on at the drop of the hat to talk about Jesus Christ Superstar. Tim, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it, man. My pleasure. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. We'll see you next time. Next time we'll come back with a, uh, a movie to talk about, but we, we thank you for hanging around as we uh, indulge ourselves about Jesus Christ Superstar. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thanks, Adam.